0: Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. This month, we have a great episode with Dr. Mary Mulcahy. Dr. Mulcahy is an associate professor within the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Tulane University School of Medicine. In addition to her clinical duties as a sports medicine surgeon, Dr. Mulcahy is also the assistant program director For the Tulane Orthopedic Surgery Residency Program and is also the director of the Women's Sports Medicine Program at Tulane. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Mulcahy and I'm very excited to share our conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Mary Mulcahy. Dr. Mary Mulcahy, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm very excited to speak with you today, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Alana. I'm really excited to be here, and and
0: congratulations to you on the success of this podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I would love to first start with your background. So in your own words, can you describe your hometown, where you went to medical school, residency, fellowship, as well as your post-fellowship years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in New Hampshire. I was actually born in southern New Hampshire in a town called Nashua, which is pretty close to Massachusetts. But really, I grew up in New London, New Hampshire, which is in the center of the state. I moved there when I was in fourth grade, and I was there up through high school. Mm-hmm. Um Following that, I went to undergrad actually at Dartmouth and then to medical school at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. And I took a year off after my second year to do research in the lab there. Um, And I also did some other fun things like auditing a couple of Spanish classes uh, and doing master swimming. Uh, So that was really fun. Um, After medical school, I went back to New England. I did my residency at Brown, which is a six-year program. Um, with kind of the first five years being the core of the residency and the sixth year being essentially a trauma fellowship. And that was a very Mm. good experience. And I I loved being back in New England and close to my family. Mm. Um, After my six years there, I actually went across the country to San Diego and I did my sports medicine fellowship there at San Diego Arthroscopy and Sports Medicine, which is kind of the academic home base for that program is Scripps Clinic um, which has a few different locations right in the San Diego area. So we got to work with several um, kind of private practice faculty that worked in practices really from like Oceanside, which is uh, north of San Diego, down to Mission Valley, which is in the southern part of San Diego. Um, and so really, that was an awesome experience. And, and it's fun now because there are so many orthopedic meetings in San Diego. So I get to go yes. back fairly frequently. <laughs> and so I really enjoy that. Um after my year in San Diego, I actually uh, went back to the Northeast-ish, I guess Mid-Atlantic, really. Um, my first job was at Drexel University College of Medicine in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and I was there for three and a half years, and that was awesome. I really enjoyed being in Philadelphia, and I loved being at Drexel. My partners were great, and the residents were great, and uh, so that was a very good learning opportunity. Um, and I just enjoyed being in the city. I had never spent that much time in Philadelphia before, right. um, and uh I ultimately left uh, Drexel and Philly to come to Tulane, where I am now, because um, I was recruited here to develop our women's sports medicine program. And I'm the fourth sports medicine surgeon here, the only woman in our group. So very excited to represent here. Um, and it's been a great experience. So I've loved being in New Orleans and my partners are fantastic. Um, we have a really great group and I get to work a lot with the residents and medical students, Um, so it's been fun, but it's been an an interesting path, and I've enjoyed all the different places that I've been. I've learned a lot from all these different institutions, uh, and I think it's nice to sort of have all those different experiences.
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing, and I know like throughout your journey, when was the moment that you realized that you wanted to do orthopedic surgery?
1: That's a very good question I think for me really it started with an interest in sports medicine because I was always an athlete I, I played soccer and I ran track up through high school and then in college I ran track uh, all four years that I was at Dartmouth I was a sprinter and a long jumper and although you can't appreciate on this, our little, uh, you know, Zencaster call here, or certainly in the audio component, I, I'm a whopping like five, one and a half. So, um, but I still, I loved the long jump. That was by far my favorite event. Uh, and so I really miss that. Um, but what I've taken from it is just a love for being active and, and fit. Um, so that's kind of where the interest in sports medicine started from. And when I was uh, a sophomore in college, I started exploring different ways to have a career in sports medicine. So being a primary care sports medicine physician, a physical therapist, you know, orthopedic sports medicine surgeon. And I spent time shadowing all of those uh, different people. And I I had had a lot of exposure to athletic trainers, just being an athlete. Um, So I felt like I had a good idea of what would be involved with that. So after spending time shadowing, it was very clear to me that I wanted to go to medical school and really even more specifically that I was most interested in orthopedic surgery. And so that was really like the end of my sophomore year of college or beginning of junior year. Um, So when I uh, applied to medical school and started in medical school, I already had that interest in orthopedics. And so I sought out opportunities to shadow and start doing research and whatnot right away. um, And that just kind of confirmed my interest. I will say, though, that as a third year medical student, I definitely appreciated a lot of rotations that I wouldn't necessarily have known that I would like pediatrics or internal medicine because You get to do so much on those rotations as a medical student, and you really kind of get to own your patients. And so I learned a lot, and I appreciated that. Um, And uh, it it never really uh, caused me to veer off my path of orthopedic surgery, but I but I appreciated those experiences, and I think they definitely have made me a better doctor.
0: Yeah, that's incredible that you knew so early on. I feel like you know a lot of the literature talking about you know trying to recruit women into orthopedic surgery. They talk about the fact that you know, women aren't as exposed early on. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but that's what the, you know, the quote unquote, the literature says. Um, But it's amazing that you're able to get those experiences and you knew literally going into medical school that you wanted to do ortho.
1: Yeah, I feel really fortunate that I had that interest early on. I mean, my mom is a nurse and so that was my initial exposure to medicine, but there are no doctors in my family. So I hadn't had that direct exposure or certainly no orthopedic surgeons um, but I think for, for any women out there, for anyone listening, like it's just the interest, the initial interest, and then starting to explore it. Um, that's really important. And I think like programs like the Perry initiative and Nth dimensions, etc., cetera, are doing a fantastic job with providing earlier and earlier exposure to orthopedics. Um, and so to get, girls to start thinking about this, like, you know, for the Perry initiative, of course, there's the Perry outreach program, which Mm -hmm. high school students can do. But even earlier than that, they have the orthopedics in action uh, program, which is sort of like that that kit that they send to um, that can be used by like middle school science classes, for example. And that gives um, even earlier exposure to the ideas of of orthopedics and potentially engineering and how they're interrelated. Uh, So I think we're doing a much better job of providing some opportunities for earlier
0: exposure, which is critical for women, especially. True, true. And speaking of sports medicine, you are currently the director of the Women's Sports Medicine Program at Tulane. And so I was hoping you can speak to us about, A, what this program is, and B, can you just humble brag for a bit and talk about what you've been able to achieve since its inception?
1: Yeah, I would love to. So we're very excited about this program that we have here at Tulane. Like the idea behind this is just providing comprehensive interdisciplinary care to active girls and women. This is not something that's limited to our D one athletes, um, but really all active women, and that includes you know that's the the teenagers playing soccer up through you know um, maybe older patients who want to be golfing or gardening mm-hmm. or whatnot. Um, so really, these resources are open and available to all of them, and the the program itself is really kind of a connection of, and a network of physicians, you know, physical therapists, athletic trainers, et cetera, who are all interested and have a passion and expertise in women's health and women's musculoskeletal injuries. So I really spent my first year here kind of Connecting the dots, like bringing together all these pieces that were present at Tulane, and making it easy to get patients between the different physicians, or to a certain athletic trainer or physical therapist, to a counselor—you know, like sports nutrition, sports psychology—like getting, uh, bringing together all those people so that the patients do have access to this network. Now, it's not a, it's not a place, it's not a building or a facility where patients go. And my department chair and boss would say yet. Like maybe someday it will be, you know, an actual like physical location. But right now the program is part of our sports medicine sort of division. Um, and we have a core team of like myself, a physical therapist an athletic trainer, uh, who, um, organize some of our outreach events. Like that's a big part of what we do too. So outreach, education, injury prevention, we have done a ton of things with regards to, um, talking about, you know, specific injuries for different sports, how to prevent them, what are some safety measures that athletes, coaches, parents, et cetera, can take. Um, We've put together a lot of uh, information, a lot of material, so handouts, information that's online, videos, et cetera, um, to to just, again, help educate the community and athletes and everyone that are tied to them, parents, coaches, athletic trainers, and all of them that that are involved with the care of athletes. Uh, and so that's been really a huge focus of the program, uh, and so it's been very, very well received by New Orleans, by the mm-hmm. even by the greater community, um, and really has enabled me and our team as a whole to get very well integrated into the community, and and it, it's awesome to have that experience and to be to uh, interact regularly with many of the physical therapy clinics, uh, other women's teams in the city that need coverage and have not traditionally had coverage, like rugby, roller derby, there's women's football. Um, And so through this program, we have been able to make those connections and really like provide a level of care for these athletes that they haven't previously had access to.
0: Mm. No, that's amazing. And congratulations on all the work that you've done. I know it's just, Thank you. you know, to quote unquote, just bring the pieces together. I know that probably was just a little bit more involved, <laughs> than just like sending a few emails. So congratulations on all the work that you've done there. Thank you. And what's also amazing is that in addition to your role as the director of the Women's Sports Medicine Program, you are also the assistant program director at Tulane. Um, And so we're currently in the midst of our residency interviewing process and our, you know, interview invitations have just been sent out. And you probably just read literally like 200 or some outrageous number of applicants and, and all these sorts of things. And so what has been your general feeling about just going through these applications and seeing all these people applying to ortho? I mean, it's
1: exciting, um, very exciting that so many people are are interested and that they're so well qualified. The applications are absolutely unbelievable to say right. that they're impressive really is an understatement uh i joke and i think we all like you probably hear your faculty at your program saying to you like oh gosh i don't know if i could match in orthopedics today like L- i mean it's, a, it's literally incredible. me now i'm like i don't yeah. even know like yeah. every year you just you i mean it's amazing you think like they can't possibly be more impressive than they were last year but but the applicants are absolutely incredible so i give them a huge um you know a sort of standing ovation here, but like they, they are absolutely amazing. And so um, very, very impressive. And congratulations to all the applicants this year and, and in years past, like for everything that they're doing to get ready for, to apply for residency. Uh, And so it was fun reviewing the applications. It's hard, very hard though, uh, as I'm sure you can understand, and you may hear from your own faculty that it's hard sometimes to separate applicants, right? Because they're so well qualified. um, And, on paper, in many respects, applicants look pretty similar. Um, there are some ways in which they stand out, but they're, I mean, they're all like doing very well in their third year. Like if they—if AOA is at their institution, many of them have, you know, been selected for AOA. Uh, they do lots of, you know, participate in lots of volunteer activities. They usually have some publications. Um, so a lot of things that are them very well qualified. Um, so it's, it's great to see that. And it becomes, uh, you know, we sort of we have a team of our faculty that review the applications and we, you know, we have a um, kind of a scoring system as I'm sure many institutions do. It's not a standard process, but what we do works for us. And that helps us kind of separate the applicants and, and determine, you know, who's great, who's qualified, who seems to be a good fit uh, for Tulane. You know, every program has their own culture. Um, what are the, you know, what are the applicants looking for and what are we looking for? Uh, so I think we're taking a lot of things into account as we're reviewing the applications and just trying to decide like, who are we going to invite to interview? And then we all know that the interview is an absolutely critical part of this process because that's where we really can get to know more about the applicants and, um, we're all missing, of course, the in-person interviews like hugely and the, the reception the evening before or the night after, because that's a great opportunity to mm-hmm. for them to get to know us and us to get to know them. Um, but at least we have uh, this virtual option, and so it does give us some connection while
0: we're still making our way through this pandemic. I've had a lot of medical students ask me, just in general, like, what should I be looking for in a program? Like, what should I be looking for in the interview process on the website, da-da-da-da-da. What would your response to that statement be?
1: Yeah, that's an important question um, for the applicants to be thinking about. What I usually tell the students here is to identify their top three or four priorities. Like, what are the things that are most important to them? For example, is it geographic location, right? I absolutely I want to be in the Northeast, all my family's in the Northeast, or is it that they, you know, they really want to be someplace where they can surf okay, well, uh, in new Orleans, you're not really going to be able to surf. So you may not want (laughs) to be at Tulane. I mean, but so, you know, think about is geographic location hobbies, right? I tell them like, you want to be close to the things that you want to do regularly because, Oh, it's a quick, it's a quick flight. Well, a quick flight when you only have a day and a half off, like it's just not feasible. So being close to those t- things, uh, and then thinking a little bit about what are some other things within the program. Of course, like uh, a really good trauma program, or they have great oncology, or a great sports experience. Like uh, if that's if you already know that's a priority, make sure that you put that in your top, you know, three or four, um, and then. If you want to be, you know, if you know a little bit about the program, oh, okay, well, I know at this program, you know, 75% of the rotations are here in New Haven, but for these two things, we've got to go to Philadelphia to do this thing and we have to go to Providence to do this other thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if they understand, like, well, I don't really want to have to travel for any of my rotations, okay, that can be another factor that they take into account. Right. Um, so I tell them, yeah, identify whatever those priorities are for you and then start looking at the programs through that lens, right? So mm-hmm. that will absolutely help narrow down. Uh, the list. And then as they go through these virtual interactions, um, you know, whether they're the open houses or these virtual rotations, um, and then certainly as they're going through the interviews, start to pay attention to how are the people, do they feel like they connect with the residents, how are their interactions with the faculty I also tell them to like pay very close attention to the program coordinator. That person is absolutely critical. He or she will be like a parent uh, to, Mm -hmm. you know, the residents. As I'm sure you know, I certainly had that experience in my program. And and so I tell them, you know, things about just email exchanges or the organization of the interview day, right? Those types of things actually matter because it's a reflection of like, what are the next five years going to be? Because that person is really, really important.
0: No, I think that's, I I would 100% echo that. You know, I think I'm very, very lucky here at Yale with, you know, our program director team. And it's the email, like literally the, I go to our program director here is Dr. Sochi and she's just been so incredible. And it's amazing the things that I'm able to come to her about. And I literally will just send her a text like, do you have a minute to talk? you know, to talk and she just like is able to just talk on the phone. And of course that minute is 100% not a minute. And it turns into like, you know, 15, 20 minutes. But at the end of the day, it's just, she's able to be that go-to person to just kind of, whenever it's, whether it's in the hospital, outside of the hospital, just anything that really, you know, comes up as life as a resident.
1: Right, right. So exactly. So like you were saying, too, it's a team, right? It's the program coordinator who's that sort of administrative person. And then the program director, absolutely critical, like that interaction, how they work together, and then just the support that they're providing to you. Um, So yeah,
0: I, I do. I think that's an important point to emphasize to medical students who are applying. No, so true. And I do want to take a moment to talk about something that was uh, that came up um, more recently. And I had the opportunity to speak to um, two of our interns here about, you know, the ortho match Excel sheet. And it was kind of it was honestly truly enlightening to hear their perspective. And I would love to hear your perspective from the program director aspect from it. And so, as we had talked about last episode, there basically was this spreadsheet many medical students used to be able to look up programs, learn more information, da-da-da-da-da. And it, there were many, many just terrible, hateful, vulgar comments about women as well as about underrepresented minorities on this sheet. Um, and in response to this, there were many national societies like the Academy, AOA, black women orthopedic surgeons who basically posted these statements, you know, basically condemning the comments and, uh, advocating for diversity. Um, what was your initial response when you heard or read these comments?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say I was shocked and disappointed, very, very disappointed. Um, I hadn't, I mean, this, this document is, you know, is, um, sort of circulated among the medical students. So I hadn't seen it. I actually, the right. first that I even heard about this were some um, some posts on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. And from one medical student in particular who was targeted and just saying that people had told her, have you seen this sheet? Like you, people are writing things about you. Uh, and so it was just shocking as more sort of details came to light over the subsequent few days. So very disappointing that in 2021, like these things are happening. It's just horrible. I mean, just in general, but also- <laughs> in light of the fact that really in the past five years, especially, there's been a huge focus on diversity, um, diversity and gender, you know, ethnicity, racial diversity, et cetera. And that the orthopedic societies, like truly believe in that and are committed to it. And it's sad that these are medical students who are trying to get into orthopedics and are bringing these things that we are trying to get rid of, um, this behavior that's totally inappropriate and unprofessional. And, um, I have the pleasure of being involved in several societies and I will say that all of them were just appalled by this behavior. And, you know, as you mentioned, many of the societies put out statements. Um, so including, you know, I'm in the Arthroscopy Association of North America, put out a statement in mean, mm-hmm. OTA, the hand society, all of these societies, AOA, like, very, very, uh, feeling very strongly about this, and to have a response like that, it says a lot um, from these societies that they felt so strongly that they want to say, like, look, we don't, we do not support this behavior. We don't want people in orthopedics who believe this, who would be writing these things, and like truly feel this way about women or other racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, so, although overall very a very disappointing situation, uh, disturbing comments. I would say, like, it was it was nice to see the strong response and solidarity from the orthopedic societies. That's very encouraging. Um, You know, I think ideally, right. We would be able to identify who these people are who wrote these comments and that they would be, you know, in some way penalized uh, for this, like they should be. And, and I'll tell you, everyone that I've interacted with in these groups, like truly believes that. Um, But it's impossible to identify them. And they know that because these, I mean, with rare exception, maybe they've told a friend, and then that friend right. knows who they are. But like, in terms of that document, it's an anonymous document, and there's no way to know who was posting what. Uh, but you, we hope, we have to hope that these statements that are coming out, not only from the big, you know, national orthopedic societies, but also from individual residency programs, right, saying mm-hmm. we do not support this and p- do not apply to our program because this is not our culture. So you have, to, we have to hope that in. These applicants seeing these statements that maybe just maybe they're going to reflect on this, hopefully feel guilty about it, and really think I should never do this again. What was I thinking? Like this is terrible behavior. I'm about to enter this profession. I need to be professional. I need to be and understand that it's important to have a you know diversity in orthopedics. Uh, so of course we hope that's what happens, right? Is there right. any way to ensure? No, but I think the response was as strong as it could be, given the anonymity of the comments and the inability to identify, you know, who wrote them.
0: Right. No, that's so true. That's so true. And I think that there are many individuals, and I'll, I'll be honest, I think I'm one of those individuals, um, and in the sense that, you know, p- putting a statement up from, you know, a national society, I think that, that's one thing to do, but it's always like, what more can be done, right? Um, I'm one of those high-maintenance people who is always kind of saying like, well done is better than well said, right? And so it's just like, what can be done? Because yes, it's great that, um, you know, that these national societies are releasing these statements. But I think that it's kind of, you know, the reason why we've been kind of in this, you know, not rut, but basically why there hasn't been diversity in orthopedics, both with regard to gender as well as underrepresented minorities is because of the fact that it's just kind of, um, just there hasn't been as many action items over the course of the years, and we've just kind of been at this steady state level for the past decade. um what do you what is your response to those like myself um who think that we should be kind of doing? That this is just—it's another little. It shouldn't just be another drop in the bucket. It really does. Like, when is when is the that final straw that says, "Okay, we this is like we got to do something."
1: Yeah, no, it's a very good question, and I think the the biggest thing is that this is a culture related issue, certainly, and mm-hmm. we can't change it overnight. But certainly, like, we need to be taking steps towards m- making things better. Uh, And I think many national societies have created some type of diversity focused group, whether it's a task force, a committee, they have identified sort of a point person that helps um, oversee different aspects and make sure that diversity is always considered. So I think societies are doing that now. And so they have Mm -hmm. definitely um, demonstrated commitment to having that as a priority. And so that's a step like that is happening. And, um, you know, things like uh, actively speaking on. I mean to have sessions, to have symposia, to have talks, to have lectureships, to have keynote speakers focused right. on diversity and these issues is a huge step. Huge step. So to have, I mean at the Anna AOSSM meeting in July, there's a 15, you know, 20 minute talk a keynote address on diversity and a lot of these issue interrelated issues, and I'm not saying that's not going to change things overnight. But the fact that right. that talk was included in that national meeting is a huge step forward. So, I would say things are being done um, in all of these societies, and so there are um, people are committed to action to, to implementing change uh, I think all of us m- most of us are quite aware of you know speak up ortho the campaign that has come out really over the past right. year uh, mm-hmm. and is um, having a huge impact and really working to affect change so there's also that group uh, plus other you know international international sort of diversity related groups um, so I say there's a lot of effort right now uh, and in terms of what we can do on an individual basis, try to get involved and have your voice heard, right? Be involved in your diversity-related committees at your institution or in national societies. Even as a medical student or as a resident, you can get, many times you can be on these committees or task force or volunteer to give your perspective. And so that's, I think, a way where you can work to actively implement change. Um, You know, things like some, you know, implicit bias training and uh, information about harassment and bullying, right? That is, there's discussion of including those things as part of, sort of annual training or for like right. leadership leadership um, positions in the academy and other societies. So I think all of those things will help, right? But there's not I wish there was like one thing we could say, okay, we can do this and then it's going to make a significant improvement in diversity and get rid of these uh, terrible comments and eliminate bullying and harassment. Um, unfortunately that's not possible, but I think it is encouraging that steps are being taken and that each of us individually really can can work to contribute and be part of that, um, that action.
0: Yes. No, thank you so much for your words. That's, that's, that's so true. And I would love for your, um, what you would say to those ortho residency applicants who are very disheartened by these posts and seeing these posts, like what would you say to those individuals?
1: I mean, I would, I would say, first and foremost, to those that were like directly impacted by this, it's like, we see you, we hear you like, and we really are in this together. and, and we as orthopedic surgeons like really truly believe that and and i think that did come across as a strong message with all of those statements so i think that that speaks to that but also to encourage these people like not to give up and not to be dissuaded by these comments from people like those the people who made these comments are the ones that are wrong like those are the people that we do not want to have an orthopedic surgery so right. we don't want other people who are in these minority groups that are being bullied or have these terrible comments written about them to be put off and to decide no orthopedics isn't for me uh, because of these comments so i would just try to encourage them to reach out to their mentors like stay positive like keep pushing forward and that know that we you know those of us in Leadership positions like really are committed uh, to making this a better situation.
0: Yeah, no, that's so true. And and thank you for saying that. And then I feel like Dr. Mulcahy, I'm putting you on the hot seat because we're going to go into another (laughs) controversial topic here. Um, And that is literally the process of applying to orthopedic surgery. Um, And so I think the preliminary data from ARIS was showing that the average number of residency position um, that applicants, like the number of Programs applicants applied to was 87. And so if we be conservative and we say that an applicant applies to 80 programs in ARIS, the cost of submitting that application is $1,779. And which is funny because I just, you know, had submitted my fellowship applications uh, about a month ago to 20 programs and it was about like 250 bucks. And what was funny is like I had <laughs> saved all this money, like, you know, I'd, you know, done the saving over the year just to like mentally prepare for this. And then I, it was just like two fifty, and I was just like, why isn't this the case for the medical students medical who aren't making care. any money? Um, <laughs> and it was nice because I was able to talk to some of our interns about this last episode, but i love to hear your perspective as well. Um, what, do you think that any changes need to occur in this whole process of applying to residency?
1: Yeah, this is a really tough, um, tough discussion. And it it has just gotten out of control, I think, with 80 programs. I mean, I applied to residency 15 years ago, which doesn't doesn't seem that long. I feel like it was yesterday. (laughs) But I think I applied to 40 programs, and now it's 80. Um, So it has just risen astronomically. And that's because, you know, the medical students are like, well, I just want to match somewhere. So I'm going to apply to every single program. Um, I mean, it kind of gets back to, I tell, you know, the medical students really to like, look at where they're applying, really consider, is this a place I'm interested in being? Um, You know, I think another thing that we're facing as a result of the pandemic, of course, is that since interviews are virtual, it's much easier for applicants to interview at multiple places, right? And some of them probably can even do more than one interview in a day. So they're not really turning down interviews. Uh, so the, they apply to all these places, you know, say there's a, an excellent student who gets invited to do 30 interviews. And because of this virtual setup that we have now, they can finagle it so they can do 25. Well, really, like, honestly, 15, at 15, you're totally exhausted. So it's really, you could say yes. at least 10 of those, they could, or the 15, or like 15 to 30, they could relinquish those interviews and give those opportunities to other applicants. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's another issue that we're facing now, especially because of the pandemic. Uh, and so it's really hard though. You can't no student is going to say, well, I got 20 interviews. I don't want to just give up 10. Like that's, you know, those are more opportunities for me to match somewhere. So it's very difficult. Like we don't there's we don't have the answer. I mean it, you know the Council of Orthopedic Residency Directors CORD, which is part of AOA, um, mm-hmm. talks about this a lot. Uh, and we wish, we really, really wish that we could put a cap on the number of either the number of programs that students are applying to and certainly like the number of places that they interview at. We wish we could do that so that it would give everyone as fair a chance as possible. Um, so I do think that there's need for reform. Like it, there's a lot of discussion about it. Nobody knows the, the perfect solution. Uh, but 80 programs just is really excessive. I mean, I think honestly, even in 2021, like applying to 50 or 60 programs, honestly, is probably more than enough. Um, So the discussion is going to keep going to continue. We do talk about it often. Um, This, uh, I think, it's challenging because students don't know, like, well, I'm yeah, I'm qualified. I'm AOA, and I like got honors in almost all my third year rotations. But how do I really know that I'm I'm good enough to match in orthopedics? And so they just want to apply everywhere. Um, I think with. You know, the elimination of step one, that also raises another sort of um, level of concern, right? Because students right. say, well, now there's not even step one to set myself apart. Well, you know what's going to happen is that it's immediately going to go to step two, right? Because right. right now programs are looking at step one as the initial screening tool, but also looking at step two. Uh, and and when step one is just turns to pass-fail, which when we review applications next year, that's what it's going to be. Um, mm-hmm. Step two is going to be weighed much more heavily, and so will step two scoring ultimately be eliminated potentially? But uh, but I can tell you, like in the it, definitely in the short term, um, step two is going to be the next area of focus. So yeah, no. I, I do. I mean, the bottom line is yes, I do think there's need for reform. Um, I wish we could, could put caps on the number of programs students apply to and interview at. I think that those that's, that would be a really important step. You know, one challenging thing is ARIS makes a lot of money on this, right? And so understandably, they don't want to cap the number of programs that an applicant can apply to. I mean, it's not right. like we, like CORD has had this discussion with ARIS. It's just a, it's, like, it just makes sense. Like, they're they're not going to be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Let's just, like, cap it at 50, Um so, that is another another challenging situation because you can have a lot of the program directors feeling like, "Wow, we really need to encourage students and try to actually implement a cap, but to really make that happen, I think would be difficult because Aris would have to be on board.
0: yeah, no, I think it's it's interesting because of the fact that you know medical students, even us as residents, we're not in that room when or maybe we are. I don't know when cord is having these discussions, right and and you guys have probably had many, many, many discussions. And yet it's just like us who have been like just shelling out the the money for the past few years. And I remember I feel so bad for Dr. Sochi because I always, my program director, I always go to her. I'm like, Dr. Sochi, why is it that, you know, this is the way things are done? Like, why isn't anything changed? And, it's, and she tells me, she's like, well, we're talking about it and da, 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 da. And so it's like, what do you think actually needs to happen? Like, is there going to have to be? some point where you know medical students start applying to a hundred and and that's the final thing that finally like we're like okay whoa hold up or like what is it that you think is it's gonna need to take in order for change to occur
1: you know i don't know the answer because there are students who are applying to a hundred or more and that's basically all of the residency programs i mean there are 150 residency programs in the country so it's already happening although the average is about 80 um So I don't, I don't know what that one thing is, but, but these discussions are a hundred percent happening all the time. Like, you know, there's a cord has a meeting at the end of the week of the Academy. That's a sort of a half day meeting. And then Mm -hmm. a two day meeting in June at the AOA meeting. And so these types of things are discussed all of the time. And, and some of these studies saying, okay, look, like this is the average number of programs that applicants applied to in 2020 and 2021. So we're like reviewing current data. Um, So, I don't think that there is the one thing. I would just say that these discussions are ongoing and that very, very active people, um, you know, as program directors or department chairs or leadership in AOA and CORD are really very serious about trying to implement change. I think it's just not obvious how to do that, right? How to implement that change. Uh, Because it's not just, if it was CORD saying, okay, if it was CORD could make all the decisions, it would have, the decision would have been made. Right. But it's it's not just cord. It's like, how does that decision then get get sort of how does heiress buy in? And and I don't know the answer to that. Um, So I'd say to be determined, but uh, don't be disheartened. Like there there are a lot of people committed to trying to make this process better. And I think Mm -hmm. like some things have been improved. Right. Universal offer day. That was yesterday like that. Is a huge step in the right direction yes. to improve the application process for applicants. So, so some things are happening. Like we hear it, we listen to applicants, um, and so that's one great example in the past year.
0: Yeah, um, no, so. I, I remember when I was applying, I had my phone on me all the time, and it was such it was a stressful. It was terrible. Like you, you literally just had to be up to ready to like just answer an interview fight literally, and I kid you not guys, like literally within five minutes in order to get the date that you wanted, especially because of the fact that some programs would have the, their interview day on the same day. And so right. you had to make sure, like, if you wanted to do, go to both programs, you got like this day for that program and that day for that program. And it was just like, ugh. so yeah, Absolutely. so I, I do, had the same, the same yeah.
1: experience. It was very stressful. And like, if you're, you know, in the OR or whatever, I mean, now, you know, I say now, but so say two years ago, like with our normal cycle, you know, normal situation and interviews coming out like all over the place, it's like students were all the time having other people like watching their email and responding to emails. I mean, it's just, it's so stressful. So I think we have made some progress, um, Mm -hmm. but we in CORD would absolutely love to be able to implement some caps. And um, so I'd just say, stay tuned, a lot of discussion and and, uh, Mm -hmm. we're working to try to make the process better.
0: I know. And one of the last kind of questions about residency that I, uh, or applying residency that I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, what do you think the post COVID application process will be like, you know, from your perspective, do you think that there will always be a sort of virtual interview option Um, or do you think that, and will there continue to be a cap on the number of away rotations uh, students will do? What do you think kind of this post COVID, Process will be like?
1: Yeah, those are really important questions. And I'd say, you know, first with regard to away rotations, like definitely everyone, everyone in court, all the leadership like involved with residency programs feels very strongly that orthopedics needs to go back to the regular situation with regards to away rotations, like doing three or four, whatever your institution allows because it's Mm -hmm. so critical for medical students applying into ortho to get that exposure, for the programs to get exposure to them. So I know that we collectively are working very hard to make that happen. This overarching organization, which I can't remember the acronym of, but kind of oversees like all of the the residency and like away rotations. The unfortunate thing is that they're looking at everything and not individual specialties where it's so critical, like ortho or ENT or whatnot. So I think that those specialties, orthopedics absolutely will work very, very hard to get our sort of normal away rotation situation back. I mean, we've been pushing for it for this year and say, well, fine, you're going to allow one rotation. That seems very arbitrary. Like why not allow three if you're going to allow one?
0: Right. Um,
1: So so that's a very active um, area of discussion. In terms of interviews, I think also orthopedic programs feel really strongly that the in-person interview is critical. Um, It's five years of your life, right? And that's really like the interviews that even in that day and a half, Right. That's way you get way more contact and way more interaction than a half day on Zoom interviews where you have five, 10 minute interviews. Like that's just You know, it's something, but it's not, not, you know, not enough. So um, we really do want to go back to the in-person interactions for interviews and the social events. Uh, And so Cord is is working on that as, as well, too. Like, unfortunately, Cord doesn't have the power to say this is what orthopedics is going to do. Like, and Mm -hmm. we, you know, we're going to disregard these other recommendations. We're trying to obviously uh, be professional and be respectful and work with this, um, this overarching group and say, okay, yes, we appreciate this and understand these restrictions because of the pandemic, but please take these specific things with regards to orthopedics into account. And this is why we feel like we should be doing three or four away rotations, why we really want to go back to in-person interviews. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so those things are happening now because- Certainly, we really, really hope that for the, you know, the 2022-23 cycle that we'll be able to do all of these in-person activities.
0: Right. No, that was awesome. And now, I know we've spoken a lot about, you know, your past and the residency application process, but I would love to talk about your goals and projects for, you know, looking forward. So what are you um, hoping to be able to accomplish both clinically, research, as well as your work for various organizations?
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I do uh, think about it a lot. I think it's good for us really at every stage as a medical student, resident, fellow, you know, in practice to have kind of our one, three, five-year goals, maybe even some 10-year goals, right? Right. What are the things that are like big reach? You know, it's going to be a while, um, but they're still on your radar so that you're doing things to get ready for that or put yourself in a position where you could potentially like have the opportunity to do X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think clinically, like obviously I care a lot about taking excellent care of my patients and will continue to do that. Um, You know, I'm still working to... Always working to like continue to grow the practice, build the practice. I do more outreach. Um, continue to like be integrated into the community here in New Orleans, um, and so I will keep working on those things. It's really been fantastic, uh, a fantastic experience being here. In research, I mean, I do lots of research. I love, love, love to do research, and not in one not on like one specific topic. I mean, probably the two main areas, broad categories are like education related type, Mm -hmm. um, projects. And then of course, sports medicine and, um, different specific injuries or kind of, um, giving a broad overview of like, what is the current state of affairs with like this particular injury? What are we doing to treat it? What are the outcomes? Um, so I will absolutely continue to do research. We have a great team and, like several different people that i work with um uh, doing my projects and so that's been fun and it's very fulfilling and i find that you know in working on one project then we ask five more questions so mm-hmm. um i really i really enjoy it i have um i, I love like re- you know sort of sounds strange like well how could you possibly enjoy this but i i do actually like to like review the manuscripts and like oh wow like this is what we found right. like in analyzing this data i'm like that is so cool and, and then we can think about asking these other questions or like sometimes I get ideas even from other specialties, right? Or like, oh, wow, they did that in OBJYN. Like, how can we apply that idea or that concept to orthopedics, especially with regards to like education type things? And within that category, it's very broad, like medical student, resident, fellow related education type things and things that fall within like leadership or uh, professional development. Like I've, writ- I've written papers on like pregnancy and parenthood in residency, like and that would kind of fall within that broad category of, of education. So mm-hmm. I think just my continued passion for research. I don't have one specific goal within research, but other than to continue to ask a lot of questions and to do research with other people who are like very motivated and, and eager to like to do great work and, and ask more and more detailed questions. Um And then in my work with organizations, um, I love what I do. I love being involved in the different societies. I'm super excited to start my presidential year for RJOS in March. Yes. Congratulations on
0: that, by the way. Thank
1: thank you. (laughs) That is right around the corner. And I I have a little speech to put together between now and then. (laughs) But it's going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to it and already kind of putting some pieces into place to try to make the most of that year to try to really uh, you know, have a good, really great opportunity to work with the committees and other societies within orthopedics um, and continue to build some of our partnerships. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and separate from RJOS, I mean, some other goals, uh, and these, this is maybe you know my 10 to 15 year goal range. Um, you know, I really hope that someday I'm going to be president of the Arthroscopy Association. And I'm doing a lot to try to put myself into a position to have the opportunity to do that. Uh, right. And then also super, super committed to contributing to AOA. I love the um, commitment and engagement with education and leadership. Um, and so I will absolutely continue to seek out opportunities to be involved in AOA.
0: No, that's incredible. And, and you know, congratulations on the RJOS appointment. I know that's Thank you. been a long time coming. So that's very exciting. I'm excited. Thank you. I know. Now, Dr. Mulcahy, I know you have many things to do. And so I would love to move on to the final segment, which is the final five, which are the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. So my first final five question for you is, what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? It's
1: hard to narrow that down to one. I like to do a lot <laughs> of different things. But if you you force me to pick something, I would say... Um, ACL reconstruction using quad autograft. I love, love the quad. So definitely among my favorite procedures.
0: Classic sports medicine like a a, response. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> it's a great graft. It's just like very reliable and reproducible. Mm-hmm. And like, um, it's just, it's fun to
0: harvest. And then I, I mean, I enjoy the whole case. So. Yeah. Awesome. What are your go-to topics for grand rounds presentations?
1: Yeah, uh, that is great. I um, have a lot of different talks, but I mean, um, the ACL, I have, I have, um, I like to give a talk on like risk factors related to ACL tears in female athletes. Because mm-hmm. um, so I've done a lot of reading and research with regards to that. So just trying to understand what are the main factors that contribute? What are the things that we can do to try to combat that in terms of injury prevention programs? And then how, how ultimately does that affect outcomes? Um, so that's one of my favorite um, talks to give. I also um, have put together a grand rounds talk on like women in orthopedics and kind of where we are, what we're doing um, and what can we do to improve moving forward. So those are probably my among my two favorite topics.
0: Nice. Nice. And then number three is, this is usually the hardest. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon?
1: I would say, um, I have a lot of really good memories. Um, One actually very meaningful was at the end of my sixth year at Brown, which as I mentioned earlier is all trauma, like very, very high level trauma Mm -hmm. during that year because Rhode Island hospital is super busy, uh, in terms of being a level one trauma center. So it was probably actually in my last two weeks there, one of the patients I took care of was involved in a motorcycle accident, terrible accident, um, had a bad lower extremity injury and came in like, it was like late at night or in the middle of the night or whatnot. and so at that point, we just did an IND and put an X fix on. But I knew I was 99% certain he was ultimately going to go on to a, a below knee amputation. Right. Uh, but didn't he was, still had some some sensation? Did not want to make that decision right then because, as I'm sure you've experienced with trauma patients at your institution, part of it is like letting giving patients a little bit of time to wrap their head around like what is happening, what is this injury, what are, what is the impact it's going to have on me, and so um, that early the next morning and over the subsequent day or so, I had a lot of discussions with the patient and his wife and their family about the injury, about really like what needed to be the definitive treatment. And, um, and they understood completely and, and we're glad that they had that time to think about it, reflect and get, and prepare themselves mentally. And so it was, you know, two or two days later when we went back for repeat IND and did the, uh, amputation. So it wasn't the case itself, honestly, but, in the, like, I was there for another, like, two weeks before I finished that, that year. And the mm-hmm. patient's wife wrote me a card, I think, like, basically a thank you note that was probably among the nicest things that anyone has ever said or written um, about me mm-hmm. or to me, including my parents. Um, and just really said <laughs> something to the effect that, you know, um, sometimes the people who are in your lives for a short period of time have the biggest impact. And just going on to say, like, they were, um, that I was given a special skill and that they were so glad to have had me in their life, even for a brief period of time, and that they would always remember me and that they were just so, um, happy with the opportunity to meet me and for me to be involved with their care.
0: Wow. Well, so I got that chills. probably is
1: the most special story.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Um. Ugh, still thinking about that. That's great. <laughs> um, number four is what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine?
1: Yeah, so um, one thing, probably the thing that I really like to do for myself, which helps every other part of my life, is just working out. And what does that mm-hmm. mean? I mean, like, exercising, staying fit. I, I work with a personal trainer once a week. I do a lot of my own workouts. I'm playing soccer, uh, now, um, playing with an all women's team. We play like once a week. So just being active, staying healthy, staying fit. Uh, and that really helps me with, like I said, everything else in my life. It just, um, it's good. It just makes you feel better. It gives you a better outlook. Uh, and so that, that I love to do. Um, Also, of course, any opportunity I have to, like, do things with my kids, you know, go, my daughter's playing volleyball now at her school. Actually, they just finished their season. She's about to start soccer. My son is playing soccer. Uh, And so it's a lot of fun to see them, like, on the field. um, And, you know, doing things, of course, if the four of us, when we're able to, like, go out and do things as a family, like, I love that time. I really, like, appreciate it. And, uh, you know, when we get, we're all, like, so distracted with the million things going on in our professional lives. And so I really appreciate those opportunities.
0: Nice. Nice. And then my final question for you is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training?
1: General advice. Um, I mean, I guess just because uh, a lot of what I do or where my passion centers around is really with regards to women in orthopedics and like medical students, female medical students interested in orthopedics. And so I would just say that there's a place for you. Like we need more women. We need more minorities in in orthopedics um, and to identify mentors and people that will support you. Uh, and to just believe that you can do this, like we're, you know, we could be among the first to say that absolutely you could be an orthopedic surgeon and it's a great field. I love what I do. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, uh, and so orthopedics is really a tremendous profession with a lot of opportunities. Of course, sports medicine is the best, but I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> um, so a lot of opportunities though, a lot of different areas that you can focus on. And so it's a really fun field, tons of innovation and opportunity, um, so I guess I would just leave everybody with that. Like everyone should consider a field in orthopedic surgery, you know, a career in orthopedic surgery, uh, and at least get that exposure and then make a decision like male or female minorities. Otherwise everyone should get that exposure
0: and, and then really, you know, make a decision at that point, whether or not they feel it's right for them. Awesome. Dr. Mulcahy, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. It's been, I, I seriously, I put you in the hot seat and I really appreciate all your words of wisdom <laughs> and, and everything that you're doing for us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much, Alana. i really enjoyed talking to you and um, good luck with everything else. Good luck with your fellowship applications this year Thank too. You. It's going to be
0: awesome. <laughs> yeah, we're very excited. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Mary Mulcahy. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.